Thank you so much for ministering that to us so effectively, drawing our hearts into that message. Well, I do hope that you are awake this morning. You sing like you're awake. Our family uh, went yesterday to the memorial service for Dr. Frank Garlock. That was so uplifting. I don't know how many of you were there. Some of you I saw, and I'm sure some of you were there, and I didn't see. But uh, it's one of the most encouraging memorial services I've ever attended. And uh, it was at 4.30, and then lasted two hours. I think we finished right about 6.30. And a lot of people there. It was at Faith Baptist Church. I think the whole ground floor was comfortably full. So you saw a lot of people that uh, it's in this town, there are a lot of folks that you've known over the years and you don't see them except at two events, weddings and funerals. And you end up talking with a lot of people. So I don't know exactly what time we got home. It was after seven and so we made a little supper and then I thought, uh, oh, I'd like a, like a cup of coffee. <clears throat> and so I made a cup of coffee. It was good, black, dark, thick. Um, and I'm drinking it real happily. That's about eight. And so I'm at my desk in my study and about 8.30, it dawned on me that it's actually 9.30. <laughs> now, I've, I've thought about the changing of the clocks all week, but I completely lost track of it after going to that service. So I'm thinking, and I just drank that coffee. <laughs> and then all night long, Dr. Garlock's songs are going through my mind. I can't get them out. And uh, so I'm pleading with the Lord to please be able to go to sleep so he may answer that prayer while I'm preaching this morning. <clears throat> so I'm hoping you will be awake <clears throat> even if I fall asleep over the top of the pulpit today. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. Romans in the 8th chapter. I want to bear tribute to this chapter through the words of four writers of yesteryear, going back first of all to the great German reformer Martin Luther, who said that the 8th chapter of Romans is the masterpiece of the New Testament. I think of that, there are 260 chapters in your New Testament, Luther saying, this is the masterpiece. 19th century commentator Godet said, if Holy Scripture is a ring, and the epistle to the Romans is its precious stone, then this eighth chapter is the sparkling point of that jewel. Another writer said, this is St. Paul's song of songs. And Octavius Winslow put it, I suppose, most dramatically of all when he said, this is a glorious landscape of truth. 
There are flowers and honey drops and fragrances, music and light and shade in which the believer in Jesus is invited to roam and revel and delight himself. I think that the more that you read the scriptures, that you come to see why that those students of scripture said those kinds of things about this eighth chapter. Why is it that so many of the Lord's most astute students of scripture have come to those kinds of estimations of Romans 8? What I want to point out is that it isn't just because of what it says. But it's because of what it takes into account when it says what it does. It's what it takes into account. What it says, look at the opening sentence of it in the first verse. It says that a justified sinner is entirely and eternally secure. And it says it in these terms, that there's no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Now when you read the word condemnation in your New Testament, you don't want to think of it in any lesser terms than these. That word isn't referring to criticism or finding fault. God does find fault with those who are in Christ Jesus. He does critique them. Read the seven letters that are written to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and the Lord is finding fault with those people who are His own. The word condemnation is not referring to that. It's referring to the ultimate. Condemnation is the exact opposite of justification. Condemnation is the death sentence. And there is none of that for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how this chapter opens. And would you look at the last verse of the chapter, please? The 39th verse, where it says that, and this is dropping right into the middle of a sentence, Neither height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The chapter opens with no condemnation. It concludes with no separation from the love of God. That's what the chapter says. But it says it taking certain things into account that tend to shake our confidence even in those dogmatic statements. And there are two of them in particular. It's not just that these are the two in the chapter. These are the two. These are the shaking factors for any Christian. The first of them is something that he mentions six or seven times in the first 17 verses. The flesh. 
are continually having to deal, even as people who are justified are having to deal with indwelling sin, which he has expounded upon in the seventh chapter. And in the eighth chapter, he's assuring us that if the Spirit of God is in us, that we are no longer in the flesh, but we continue to have to deal with it. That's what causes many of the Lord's people to ask themselves how they could possibly, truly be Christian people, save people, if they're still dealing with such and such. The evidences of the flesh. If you look please at the 18th verse, there's a little transition that started in verse 17, but it's introduced emphatically now in verse 18, and that is the sufferings of this present time. That is the other thing that really troubles and undermines, it erodes the confidence of the Lord's people. Confidence about what? His love for them. It's our struggles with sin that really undermine our security about being justified people. It's the sufferings that seem to us to call in question God's love for us. Those are the two big factors, and those are the two things dealt with in this chapter. And so the point that I'm making, folks, is this. It isn't just what chapter 8 says. It's what it takes into account when it says those things. And what it takes into account is basically everything. We're going to see from our reading in just a moment that there's nothing that isn't included. And I've been greatly blessed this morning by one of the verses that was put up on the screen. And the words were also ministered to us in one of the numbers. And that is that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You can take it to the ultimate. This chapter takes it all into account when it says these wonderful things to us. And what it turns us to as its great climax in verses 37, 38, and 39. And those are the climactic verses. I want to show you what it climaxes with. Verse 37, the second to the last word, loved. We're loved. Verse 39, nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. Now he raised that as a question in verse 35. Who shall separate us from that? We are, verse 37, loved. Verse 39, nothing can separate us from that. That's the climax of this chapter. Despite our ongoing struggle with sin and despite our experiencing suffering, you are loved. Nothing can ever remove you or distance you from the love of God. And folks, you can see then, without my giving any further introduction, that this is one 
of the most important passages, perhaps in some senses it would rank right up there with a top three or so. It's one of the most important passages in all the Bible to take into account when we're admonished to keep ourselves in that love. Jude 21, our verse for this morning series, and you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, that's what we're doing this morning. We're looking at the things of our most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit, that's what we did in preparation for this service, and it's what we did a few moments ago when we all prayed together. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep this perspective that is ministered to us in Scripture. Now what I would like to do is read verses 26 through 39. This is a passage that many years ago I memorized and that several times a year I refresh And I want to recommend to every single Christian in this room this morning and all of you listening by the live streaming that you make it your ambition to memorize Romans 8, 26 to 39 before you die. So that it will be with you as you're dying. You need it in life, but you're going to need it in death. I want to encourage you. Really, I want to urge, I want to push on you to prayerfully consider what I'm exhorting this morning, that you, for yourself, embed these words in your heart so that when you ultimately are under the greatest stresses, you will not sin against the love of God by doubting Him in your fragile heart. Let's read these verses together. And as we do, you'll find that there are three sections to them. You're going to find in verses 26 through 30 a great concentration of statements of truth. If you look at verse 31, first sentence ends with what mark of punctuation? That's the first of seven. Great statements of truth followed by questions. And those questions basically finally bottom out at the end of verse 36. Then verses 37 to 39 are persuasions, two of them in particular. So we keep that in mind as we read statements of truth. Then on the basis of those statements, questions. And once all those questions are finally answered... Then verse 37, we can say, in verse 38, we're convinced. Great persuasions. Let's read together. 
In the same way as the Apostle has spoken in other things just previous to this that are all on our side and provided for us by God, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. How do we know? Answers, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And if you're a Christian this morning, you know the reality of that. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Statements of great bedrock truth. Now those things being so, first question, verse 31, what then shall we say? To these things. Lots of questions now. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect, the people whom he chose in eternity past? Who can bring any charge against them that will ultimately stand? When the truth is, next sentence, God is the one who justifies Who is the one who condemns? Remember what that is. It isn't criticism. It's a final verdict. It's the death sentence. Who can do that with any right or any authority so that it stands when Christ Jesus is he who died? Who is the one who condemns? Death sentence when Christ Jesus is the one who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? We can think of all kinds of things that seem to us to be the evidence that that's happened. So the Scripture, the Spirit of God, wants to put out some of the ultimate ones for our consideration. 
question us about them. Will pressure can feel that way. Will tribulation actually separate us from the love of God, love of Christ, or distress? Maybe you cried this week in great sorrow and distress. Persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. And there's scripture about that last one. That does happen to God's people. That's what is written in the 44th Psalm. For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. In the words of Peter, don't consider that to be an odd thing as though some strange thing has happened unto you when in fact there's Scripture stating it that that is what happens in this world to some of God's people. But our persuasions are these and these persuasions are based firmly upon the bedrock of all those truths in all these things. When they happen, if they happen to us in the future, if you experience that when no one else within our assembly here is, when it's you alone out of all of us dealing with a particular matter that's been instanced here, you're going to find that you will overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. You do not have that in yourself, neither do I. You will conquer through Him. Who loves you. So that you can have this conviction about your future. And even now, in the midst of your trouble, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, sometimes it's easier to die, isn't it, than to go on living. Either way, there are no angels or principalities. There's nothing present. There's nothing that's going to come in your future. Not tomorrow, not in your last day. There are no powers, earthly or celestial. No height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord willing, we're going to give attention to these questions beginning in verse 31 and running through verse 39 over the course of a few Lord's Day mornings in connection with our series. When you focus on those questions, a fact emerges. And that fact is that God's love for His children is beyond all doubt. I don't want to qualify that by saying it's beyond all reasonable doubt. Folks, it's beyond unreasonable doubt. There are so many things as Christian people that our minds conjure up 
someone else listening to us would say, that doesn't even make sense. But to us, it's reality. Scripturally, it's unreasonable. You can, you can imagine anything you wish. As, as crazy as you can dream up. God's love for you as one of His children is beyond even that unreasonable doubt that is so gripped and is so tormenting of your spirit today. When you examine those questions, they lead to a conclusion. What is the conclusion again? That God's love for His children is beyond all doubt. I want to begin speaking to you on that subject this morning, and I want to call our attention to verses 29 and 30, where we have certain divine acts that are stated as if they were already accomplished. Every one of these, of course, would be a rich subject for an entire message. I want to handle all five of them essentially with just a paragraph in my notes because we've given great attention to these in the past and they continually surface in exposition of the New Testament in particular. So in the case of every one of these, we've given extended understanding to it. But here are these divine acts. If you've never underlined them, I'd encourage you to do so. There are five of them. The first, verse 29, is God's foreknowing certain people. This isn't talking about His general omniscience. He foreknows everything that way. Foreknowledge in the Scripture is a matter of God's actually determining it. You'll see that if you'll compare the other passages. Whom He foreknew first act, he predestined, there's the second, verse 30, whom he predestined, those he called, this is not the general call to come to Christ, it's not the general preaching of the gospel, this is the effectual call that the apostle Paul gives some explanation of in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, he says it does not go out to everybody. He particularly singles out the rich, the powerful, the famous, the educated. And he says, actually, not many of those people are the recipients of this kind of call. Those whom he called, next action, he justified. In this linkage of these five accomplished acts, would you please notice that, that all of the called are justified. It's not the general call that goes out to the world in general that so many of them are heedless of. This chapter is addressed to God's children. He foreknew them. He predestined them. And all that he predestined, every single one of them, he called effectually. 
meaning that his call was successful. That's what the word effectual means. It happened. They came and were justified. And then it says, and all of the justified, he glorified. Now, folks, all five of those are in a verb tense that refers to something that has been accomplished, which is remarkable when you consider the fifth one glorified, because experientially we're awaiting that. But in terms of God's settled determination about it, his unalterable decree concerning it, accomplished fact. And what I want to call your attention to for your blessing this morning is that two of these, notice them please, his foreknowing you and his predestining you, that those two, the scripture teaches, took place before the foundation of the world. There's a great mystery to that. But actually, it is that very mystery that displays as very few things in Scripture do. It's that very mystery that displays the entire independence of God's love. It's entirely independent of us. In other words, it's not conditioned upon us at all. Before the foundation of the world, that's when he did it. Had nothing to do with my foreseen acts or my foreseen faith. That's what Paul argues later on in this book. It isn't based upon what he knew that either Jacob or Esau was going to do. It isn't based on those foreseen matters. God did foresee. But his love is entirely independent. And all of it was before the foundation of the world. And folks, that's made indisputably clear, that love for us, by what follows when he asked this series of questions. So I want to move us to that now. Here's the apostle's methodology. He states that these things are the case. If we have real desire to know more of them, then all you have to do is take out your concordance and look up the references to each of those divine activities. And you can do your own little personal, devotional, and reassuring study about each of those acts of God. And as you do that, I think that what you'll discover is that you are so greatly loved that it says the scripture says, eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, it hasn't entered your imagination how great this is. But now on the basis of those, without going into full explanation of them here, the apostle asked this series of questions in order to really get at this matter with which he's going to climax. And that is the whole issue of God's love for us. And I want, before we deal with these questions, and we're going to deal, Lord willing, with only the first of them today, I want, before we do that, to make two observations. And the first of them is this. That these are the really big, ultimate questions. These are not small ones. 
These are not questions like, if God loves me, why did he let me run out of gas on the way to work this morning? If God loves me, why do I have to work such long hours? If God really loves me, why am I sick today? Those are not unimportant questions, but folks, those are way too small to call in question God's love. Really, I could say shame on us. These are the big questions. That's what makes this chapter big. It's what makes it great. These are the great questions with the great answers. So, if Romans, you know, is like the ring, Romans is like the scripture, and the eighth chapter is like the jewel, Romans 8 is the bright point of that jewel because of the greatness of what is taken into account. The second observation that I would like to make is this, that these questions don't come groundless. They don't come, as it were, as solos. Every single one of these questions actually comes rooted within the question itself or within the way it's introduced. Every single one of these folks comes with undeniable certainties attached to it. In other words, you go right down through and look at them and you'll see, look at the way the first one is introduced in verse 31, if such and such is the case, then the question. Verse 32, seeing that such and such is the case, then the question. They all come grounded in these wonderful certainties. So that God doesn't ask us to answer these without giving us overwhelming cause for the answers that we give. So I want to turn your attention then to the first of these. Read it again, verse 31. What shall we say to these things that were just stated in such brief fashion in the previous verses? If God is for us, as all of those things testify that he was actually for us before he ever made the world. It didn't happen like this. That God made the world, he had a tremendous plan and expectation. The fall occurred, and so God was required to figure something out. Before he ever made the world, the whole plan was made, including his foreknowing me and predestining me. If God is for you like that, then who or what could possibly be against you? Now, folks, the fact is there are many, many things against us. We say with Jacob, all these things are against me. But what it's talking about is whether or not any of those things can be ultimately successful. Can there be any successful opposition against you as a child of God? 
I want to call your attention, first of all, to that affirmation, God is for us. When it's introduced with the word if, it's not calling in question whether or not God is for you. It's just stating it in the way that we do certain things when we're having to raise a question. Actually, you could translate it since. Because there's not any question at all about whether or not God is for you. Now, folks, let's be really, really clear about this. God is not necessarily for my material prosperity. He's not necessarily for my material comfort. He's not necessarily for my nearly having perfect health until the day I die. God is not for many, many of the things that we're for. And when they don't happen, then we question him. What God is for is exactly what he has assured us of. He is is for our entire sanctification, body, soul, and spirit. He is entirely for our becoming like his son in flesh. When his son was on earth, the incarnate son of God, he is for us being completely changed until we, every one of us, is like that. That's what he's for. And he's done all that is necessary, starting in eternity past, and including his settled, unchangeable decree that it will happen in our glorification. He's done all that. He's for us. And all of those actions demonstrate that. You know, if you have any question about that, it might help you to just reverse the prepositions. Look at verse 31 again. Look at that question again. And instead of if God is for us, who is against us, read it this way. If God is against us, then who could possibly be for us successfully? Reverse the proposition. Folks, in your own mind, that often happens, doesn't it? Seems to you, that's why you're saying with Jacob, all these things are against me. Poor Jacob, if he could have only had a little glimpse of what we know now, all of these millennia later, because we can read the whole account of it, we know every single thing happening to him was for him. Just like this passage says, God makes all things work together for that ultimate good. What is the most painful to me right now may actually be God's sharpest instrument for making me most like what he has determined. People sometimes who are reduced to being bedridden, nearly immovable, people under constant care, when it comes to their spirit, their spirits are bright, almost as if they already were heavenly. They are suffering in the flesh. They have, as Peter says, ceased from sin. The wonderful thing. Is God for you or against you this morning? If you say, I don't know, then I have to ask you, why don't you know? You ought to know. God's people in the Bible knew. They came to conclusions about that. The Apostle Paul, with all of his sufferings, could say what he says at the end of this chapter, I'm persuaded. You read your hymn writers, they knew Fanny Crosby. Take Fanny Crosby. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of heaven divine. Heir of salvation, 
purchase of God. Born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Was God for Fanny Crosby? She's blind. It happened by the accident of a physician. She's a small child. Was God against her? Did Fanny Crosby know whether God was against her or for her? Blessed assurance. That's what we need, folks, and that is what is glorifying of God. It isn't just that we need it for our own comfort. God needs us to have it for his honor. And if you doubt that, if you really, even after those considerations, if you just find yourself really doubting if God is for you and that is persistent with you, then you really need to ask yourself whether you're even a Christian. Because it may be that you've never yet exercised saving faith. Because saving faith carries with it these assurances. That's what Romans 5 was saying. The love of God is poured out in your heart if you're a child of God. If it's just not customary at all for you to be able to have that assurance or when you're shaken to be able to fairly quickly recover it, then you probably as yet don't possess the Holy Spirit. And that accounts for why you don't experience the love of God poured out in your heart when you most need it. The undeniable affirmation is that God is for his children. And that being the case, then the question is asked, who is against us with any possibility of their being successful? Folks, that question is put here in such a way that the answer is assumed, isn't it? Isn't that right? The answer is assumed. Look at it again. What then shall we say to these things? Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, I mean, look at all those things, then who or what could possibly be against us with any success? The answer is assumed. There's really no possibility of answering it rightly apart with apart from simply one response. Over the centuries God's people have taken great comfort from the records of believers who have gone before them and as their affairs have unfolded and God has generously provided they have ended their lives outstanding, really, pillars, in some cases, literally fiery pillars. God is for me. I'm one of his justified children. God is for me. And folks, I want to encourage you to be perhaps if you need to be more attentive to the examples of the Lord's people who have gone in the past. 
want to give you an illustration, an example of that. I've brought a thick book to the pulpit this morning. There are over 850 pages in this book. This is the third of eight volumes. The font is very small. The lines are compressed together. It's very dense reading. It's the third of eight volumes. The eight volumes are Fox's Book of Martyrs. The third volume is at the beginning of the English Reformation with Wycliffe. So that's why I brought the third volume this morning. Some of the volumes are bigger than this volume. John Fox fled when Mary Tudor, known to us as Bloody Mary, came to the throne. There were some 800 English exiles that fled the island and went to the continent or to other places. Many of them ended up in Geneva underneath the ministry of John Calvin. John Knox was there at the time with a lot of the Scottish refugees. Mary Tudor was on the throne from 53 to 58, 1553, 1558. That's a short period of time. In 55, she started burning people. In 45 months, she burnt more Protestants that had been burnt in England in the whole century and a half preceding those 45 months. No one knows exactly for sure how many of those people were put in the flames, but there were nearly 300 of them. 26 of them were ministers, 55 of them were women, and four of them were children, if you can believe that. John Fox is in Switzerland, and he's receiving the reports. They keep coming in. And he's recording everything that he can get his hands on. Mary dies in 58. Her sister Elizabeth comes to the throne. The refugees, many of them go back, including Fox. And Fox, in 1563, just five years after her death, issues the first printing of his Book of Martyrs. He expands it later, but the first printing is just five years after Mary's death. That's just five years after the last burning of five people all together. She burnt them in November of 55. She died in November of 55. And my point is that when John Fox publicized what he had received, he was doing so in such close proximity to the events that there were literally thousands of people in England who could bear testimony that what he wrote is exactly the way it happened. Now, much that you have in these volumes is the record of the indictments against these people, the papers and the defense that they gave in response, and so on. Those are the kinds of things that I move over and don't really give that much attention to. What I'm interested in are the initial charges, and I'm interested primarily in what was the end? How did God stand by them? So here, for instance, is the very first man that she burnt, John Rogers, who pastored St. Sepulchre near Smithfield in London, 
our church history group goes there. We always visit Smithfield. She burned something like 45 people right there on that spot. Rogers pastors this church. They get him out of Newgate Prison early in the morning, hoping that it'll be before the crowds know anything about it. But somehow word had gotten out. The streets are lined. There are hundreds of people, including his wife and 11 children. He's refused any time with his wife or his children. The French ambassador to England was in the crowd. He said Rogers walked to that stake like a man going to his wedding. That's what he recorded. He's not a believer. But that's what he thought he was seeing, like a man going to his wedding. And they had said to Rogers ahead of time, if God is with you in the fire, make a sign, make a sign. When they light the fire and the flames are springing up, Rogers extends his hands to them like he's washing them in cold water, bathes his cheeks in fire, and then stands with his hands thrust up to the heavens until he dies. You can't do that. That's called a miracle. And folks, that's the miracle that these people experienced again and again and again. They burnt groups of people. On one occasion, they burnt two women with five men. They tied the five men or they staked them with chains to the stakes. The women, they left in the middle of those five stakes without chaining them at all. The women burnt like the men. It's called a miracle. Now, I'm calling our attention to that for this reason. Folks, the small questions, the little questions that disturb us from day to day, they're not totally unimportant, but we really need to do what our Bible does. Our Bible goes to the ultimate questions because once you get the big questions answered, most of the small ones just kind of dissolve. And what God has given to us in, I'm going to single out the English Reformation. He's given to us a brief period of time. The reign of one woman. A period of burning that doesn't even amount to four years. But it stands for all time as a slice in the history of the church, like a Hebrews 11 in my Bible. For all the rest of church history, God does intend that his people at least sample this outstanding example that stands. He doesn't intend, evidently, that in every generation, hundreds of his people are burned alive. He intended it for about four years in England, in the English Reformation. We're English people. It's like it's given to us in our own language. And we can read the testimonies of those people. We can read of God being with them in the fire. In our living room, we have a picture of John Bunyan in prison for 12 years. We have a picture of the Bercado, which was the prison in Oxford where they pinned up Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer. We have pictures hanging on our wall of Latimer and Ridley. I often look at them. I often remember those men. I remember Latimer writing to Ridley 
saying to Ridley, pray for me. Oh, please pray for me. I sometimes feel so small that I could crawl into a mouse hole. And then he said, but God comforts me. God comforts me. And at the stake, Latimer was bold as a lion. Play the man, Ridley, play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust to God will never be put out. This is God, folks. This is God for his people. I have for our first year on the five-year reading class, reading list, one of the six volumes that I have there is entitled Five English Reformers. I have that there the first year. I have that there for the first year for a reason. Because we're not all going to read all of that. I've owned it for years and dipped into it only a little bit. But folks, here's a little thin paperback with the stories of just five of those people. You read one book like that, and I understand, I understand our reticence to read about people's sufferings, almost our fearfulness to do that. I want to assure you it would do your soul good to do some of that. God has left that as an outstanding record for all time to assure his people right up until the Lord Jesus comes that he is for them and nothing can be successfully against them. Nothing can separate them from his love. At the moment that they're in the fire, Faith Cook wrote this wonderful little book of biographies entitled it Singing in the Fire. At the moment they're in the fire, you read of those people and they're going to sing and they're going to pray and they're going to bathe their faces in the flames. And even at times when they're feeling such pain. Sometimes God allowed them to feel great pain. They don't give in. They don't recant. God is with them, even when they feel pain. Now, I need that example. I need to be taken to the ultimate things. And then I have the ultimate answer. And if you this morning are thinking, everything's against me, the economy is against me, Wall Street's against me, the Federal Reserve is against me, the administration in Washington is against me, my health is against me. Of course they are. This is the world. This is the world. But God is for you. And that'll never change. He's been for you before he ever created the world. And he already determined you're going to be glorified. You're going to come out real good when he's done with this. Let's bow for prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you so very much for this wonderful assurance in this chapter. We pray today for ourselves and especially for our brothers and sisters who are wavering, who may have really been staggered by something that your loving providence brought into their lives that they might know you better and might be able to honor you with their testimonies. 
Gracious Lord, recover them. We pray for that. We pray for the reviving of their spirits, new life that takes control of their thoughts. And grant to us, we pray, all through the remainder of this day, the wonderful confidence of these things that have been ministered to us so mightily in music this morning that we've seen in your word and about which there's no question at all. And we ask that it would fortify us. And we pray that by your grace, no one here would experience the failing of his or her faith. We ask this for your honor. We pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.